Romans 8, verse 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you for your word, your faithfulness to your church, that you keep us, you do not let us go, you defend us against our enemy. Lord, we pray that this morning we would be encouraged in this way, that we would realize, Lord, that our enemy cannot succeed against us because you are for us. Lord, we thank you that we have the victory, that we cannot have your love which has been shown to us separated from us. We thank you, Lord, for this, and we pray that this would enlighten us this morning as we go out into the world that is in panic. And I pray, Lord, that this group of people as we go out would be a light, that the hope we have in the midst of this crisis that our world is facing would bring to question, what hope do you have? Why are you unafraid? Lord, give us wisdom this morning. We need your spirit to open our eyes to your word. We thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to imagine this morning, you know, we we see the verses where it says, store your treasures in heaven. So I want to imagine that there is a bank in heaven, and probably Matthew, the tax collector, is the accountant or the head teller, and something is really bad is going on in your life, and suddenly you decide, you know what, all those treasures I've laid up in heaven, I'm taking them out. I'm going to take that deposit out. So you go up, and again, not a great analogy completely, but you say, Matthew, I need to take out my money because I... I just don't think this is what it's supposed to be. I I don't understand how, I mean, I put my treasure here and it just seems like it's not working. So he takes it out, says, okay, whatever you want, takes that treasure out. And the problem is, 
He can't put it back. And I experienced this this week. I was at the bank depositing a check. And a uh, late middle ages, an older couple came in and they decided because of all that's going on around us that they needed to take money out of an, a CD that was getting them, I mean CDs don't get great interest rates, but that was getting them decent interest rate because they were afraid they would not be able to get a hold of that money. The difference... The, the terrible analogy I gave you at the beginning is our treasure in heaven can never be taken. And I, I believe that's the point that Paul has been making in chapter 8. When we are in Christ, we have hope. Our hope is eternal, and we saw that last week. We saw that when we are in Christ, that we have already been sanctified justified, because God has called us, and we are glorified, and we're going to see the fullness of God's glory. And so, when we get to verse 31, we see an amazement. I believe when Paul asks this question, what then shall we say to these things? He's saying, all of what I've told you from Romans chapter 1 to Romans 8, what are we going to do about this? How will we respond to this amazing news? This should affect us that God sent His Son to die because we were wicked. That should affect us so deeply that when we come to this question, we're in awe, like, I don't know what I can do. Because God has done it all. How am I going to respond to these things? And Paul gives us a question that's not really a question, it's a statement. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who's God? I think the problem is nowadays we don't define who God is. So I want to go through a list that A.W. Tozer has in one of the best short books that I know on the, the character of God. He's self-existent. He existed before anything else, and He never began. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't have to go somewhere else to get strength or power or love or any other attribute of God. He is that completely. He's eternal. And He's infinite. Those both have a, a weight that we have a hard time understanding because we all have beginnings. And we all will face God at some point. He's infinite. He, he has no end to who He is. He's never had a beginning. He's unchangeable. Now this is something that people don't understand. God does not change. His Word is true. When God ex reveals Himself he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He's all-knowing. He knows you better than anyone else. And actually, God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows why you do what you do. Why you love sin or a particular sin in your life. 
why you've turned to Him. He knows all things. Everything that is going on in the world, God's not sitting back like, oh no, what has happened? I took a nap and the world has gone away. He's all wise. He, he knows, not only, he doesn't, not only does He know all things, He knows how to plan perfectly, to apply knowledge, and He doesn't have to go look for it somewhere else because He has all knowledge. He's all-powerful. Or omniscient, all, yeah, omniscient is all, all-knowing, sorry. But, but He's all-powerful. He's not wondering where He's going to get His power from if He expends it on our behalf. Because God doesn't have an end. He's infinite in His power. And this one thing, this one attribute, I want to read something that Tozer wrote. I was reading it this morning. Just on this idea. It's kind of a long quote, so please bear with me, and I'll make some points as I read. One cannot long read the Scriptures sympathetically without noticing the radical disparity between the outlook of men of the Bible and that of modern men. We are today suffering from a secularized mentality. When the sacred writers saw God, we see laws of nature. Their world was fully populated. Ours is all but empty. Their world was alive and personal. Ours is impersonal and dead. God ruled their world. Ours is ruled by laws of nature. We are always once removed from the presence of God. And what are these laws of nature that have displaced God in the minds of millions? Law has two meanings. One is an external rule forced by authority, such as common rule against robbery and assault. The word is also used to note the uniform way that the things act in the universe. But this second use of the word is erroneous or false. What we see in nature is simply the paths God's power and wisdom take through creation. Properly, these are phenomena, not laws, but we call them laws by analogy with the arbitrary laws of society. Science observes how the power of God operates and discovers a regular pattern somewhere and fixes it as a law. The uniformity of God's activities in His creation enables the scientists to predict the course of natural phenomena. The trustworthiness of God's behavior in His world is the foundation for all scientific truth. Upon it, the scientist rests his faith, and from there he goes on to achieve great and useful things. Religion, on the other hand, goes back of nature to God. It is not concerned with the footprints of a God along the paths of creation, but with the one who treads those paths. Religion is interested primarily in the one who is the source of all things, the master of every phenomenon. That's who God is. And he has something else here. And please forgive me. I, I know this is not scripture, but 
I believe he had a grasp of this idea. He says, Omnipotence is not a name given to the sum of all power, but an attribute of a personal God who we Christians believe to be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and of all who believe in Him to life eternal. The worshiping man finds this knowledge a source of wonderful strength for his inner life. His faith rises to take the great leap upward into fellowship with Him who can do whatever He wills to do, for whom nothing is hard or difficult because He possesses power absolute. Just think about the power of God. The Word of God created the world we know completely. God caused a hundred-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman to conceive and have a child. It says that Abraham, though he was considered dead, believed, and God was faithful. God caused a sea to open up so His people could pass through. God destroyed the, the greatest army of that time in that same sea by His power. God brought out Slaves from the most powerful nation in the world at that time. That's who God is. And we can just keep looking. God's power in Jehoshaphat. God's power with the the rulers of Israel who turned to Him like David to defeat Goliath. But it was only in God. It wasn't that David was some great man. His faith was in Christ. And so... This is the question, who is your God? Because if you have a a low view of God, then who cares who comes against us? Because if our God is too low, then we won't believe the second part. The point that Paul is making, if God is not the all-powerful, almighty God who is infinitely good, infinitely faithful, infinitely just and merciful, gracious, loving, holy and sovereign, then we can just take the Bible and throw it out. Because the point that Paul making is making here is that if this God is not the all-powerful God above anything else you could ever think, then the second half of the statement has no value. If you don't believe God is the greatest and the most powerful, then who cares what the second half says? So we have to believe in this God, who the Bible says He is, not the one that the world is telling us we serve. We serve the Almighty God. And so, if He is God, then who can stand against us? That's what Paul's saying. This is my God, and I know that no one can stand against me. Does that mean that people won't come? That Satan won't come against us? Because this first section, verse 31 through 34, I have under the title or or the point, Persecutor, what are the charges? Or Prosecutor, sorry, I didn't pronounce it right. Prosecutor. So, if God is for us, who can be against us? A prosecutor can come and bring a charge, but guess what? God's the judge. 
And it's not going to stand up in a court of law because we have something that the world doesn't have. And we find it in verse 32. If you look there, it says, He who did not spare His own Son. He's telling us now why no one can come against us. How it's possible that no one can come against us. He's really summarizing all that He's already said. But I think this is so important. He did not spare His Son. Now all of us who have kids or were kids... Oh wait, all of us. Okay. (laughs) Did any of us ever experience mercy at our parents' hand or have extended mercy to our own children? So none of y'all have had mercy extended your way. Okay. (laughs) But we've all experienced mercy. Did we deserve mercy? No. We didn't deserve mercy from our parents. Isaac didn't deserve mercy from that police officer that pulled him over. I didn't deserve mercy a couple times I got pulled over in my lifetime. We can all think to times when people in authority have said, you know what, I'm going to let you go on this one. I'm not going to bring the full weight of the law. But God didn't do that with Christ. He leveled the whole penalty that we were due on Him. Get a picture of that. Can you imagine the wrath of God being leveled on His own Son? That's what He's saying. He did not spare His own Son. I hope you get a picture of that because he didn't lay he didn't he didn't say, "Oh, well I'm going to go easy on you." No, he didn't go easy on him. And it's interesting this phrasing is almost identical to the story of Abraham and Isaac. Remember Abraham goes up the mountain He's going up in obedience to God to sacrifice His own Son. If you don't believe this picture is of Christ, the difference is Abraham gets up there and he's about to kill his son and the angel of the Lord says, Stop! Now I know that you love me because you did not spare your own son. I provided a lamb for your son. But here, Christ, the difference is God takes the place of Abraham and He slays His only son for us. For the sin that we deserved was laid on Christ. God the Father did not spare His own son for you. He allowed Him to be crushed. We see this in Isaiah. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah 53. I'm going to read this section, but verse 3 to 10, he says, He was despised and forsaken of men 
a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one whom men hid their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Why? Because God was laying on him all that we owed. So what he's saying is all those standing around, all those that saw the crucifixion and everything leading up to the death of Christ were saying, Up, oh, see, you weren't who you were, who you said you were. You said you were the Son of God. If you were the Son of God, then this wouldn't be happening to you. How many times do we hear that in the world? If, if you were a child of God, then you wouldn't be going through these tough times. That's ridiculous. That's not... He said, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. God did not spare him. He was crushed for our iniquities. Just imagine just a boulder, a rock just crushing him. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. All the chastening that we deserved was put on Christ. God did not spare Him. The Father did not spare Him. And by His scourging or His stripes, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord, we've gone away. There was no reason why He should have put that on Him. Other than love. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He did not spare His Son. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away and as... For his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. We deserved it. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. I mean, talk about prophecy. This is our God. He knew what was going to happen centuries before. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And this is the the hammer right here in verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now there's some people out there that want to label God as a child abuser. They call this divine child abuse. And this is ridiculous because Jesus Christ gave His life willingly. But the Father sent Him. The Father poured out His wrath on Him. But the difference is, Christ never lost the love of the Father. Why? He was constantly doing the will of the Father. Even as He was being crushed. 
If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. I think Paul was clearly thinking about this when he was writing this. Because if you look at the language that Paul is using there in chapter 8, it's clear, I believe, when he says he did not spare his son, Christ was not spared an iota of the wrath that we deserved. He took the entirety of God's wrath upon Himself. I hope that doesn't just pass over. I hope we don't forget this. Because not only did He not spare His Son, in the second part of this, He says, but... So that was the negative. He didn't spare His Son. But He delivered Him over for us all. Satan didn't get the power to crush Him through the wicked because Satan was powerful. God allowed it to happen. God gave him the power to crush his son. Satan would have had no power to touch Christ without it. So God didn't just send His Son and not spare Him. He gave Him all the power to crush Him so that He could take the weight of sin, the death that we deserved. So since He didn't spare His Son, since He laid all of what we deserved on Him, and He delivered Him over, what do we see there at the end of verse 32? How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Do you see that? If God was not unwilling to not, not only did He not spare His Son, He delivered Him over for us all, why wouldn't He give us all things? He's not talking about the Ferrari that you want down at the, the Ferrari dealer, okay? Let's just be clear. Paul wasn't worried about us misunderstanding this. He's talking about all things that pertain to life and godliness. Just look back to verse 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Those all things, like we said, include suffering. God is bringing about all things in our life for the purpose of bringing us home to that heavenly treasure that is being laid up. And so our hope does not have to fall away. If God didn't spare His own Son and delivered Him over for us, how will He not also freely give us all things? In Him. That's the key. It's in Him. It's not 
in uh, Gandhi or whatever religion you want to go after, Buddha, Islam, Muhammad is not going to give you all things. Christ alone is the hope. And if God is for us, how, how can we have anyone against us? And when we think of that being delivered over, there's a commentary that I've been reading by John Murray. And, and he says this about being delivered over. He said, Jesus was delivered up by the determined counsel of the foreknowledge of God. And by the hands of wicked men, He was crucified and slain. If restraint had been placed upon the power of the enemy, He would not have despoiled the forces of darkness and made a show openly of the principalities and the powers. He would not have triumphed over them and bound them effectively to the triumphal chariot of His cross. And this not further proof of the Father's grace that He should have given over His own Son to the malignity and hate, the ingenuity and the power of the Prince of Darkness and His hosts. It was the Father who delivered Him up, not the hosts of darkness. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love of us. And we see that? Yes, Judas and Pilate will all answer for what they did. The Jews that lived in that time. But it was the Father who gave Him up. It was not because the Father loved us. And that's why you, when we finally get to the end of this section, why He's talking about love. Because this is a picture of love. That the Father would not spare His own Son. Why else would He not spare His Son unless He loved us? Verse 13, 33, we really get to this idea of the prosecutor. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And it's a parallel question in verse 34, if you look at the first half. Who is the one who condemns? See both of those? It's, it's asking the same question. Who's going to bring up, who's going to bring a charge against the ones God has chosen? In Christ Jesus, who? God is the one who justifies in verse 33. It's interesting, these, this passage here, 31, or 32, 33, and 34, are so heavily found in Isaiah. Let's turn there in Isaiah chapter 50 really close to where we just were. See if any of these words seem to be what Paul's thinking about. I think it's pretty clear. Verse 4. 
The Lord has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary with weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. Does this sound like Christ? The picture of Christ. A prophecy. I did not cover my face with humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, though I am not... Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? In the, in the Greek, it's the same words. If you look at the Septuagint of this passage, it's almost identical to what Paul just said. Who will bring a charge against the elect? Let us stand up. Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have from my hand. Isn't that amazing? We see here... Paul is clearly referring to this because he sees in verse 9, the Lord God helps me. They will all wear out like a garment. All that is going on around us, all that goes on in the world cannot separate us from the love of God because it's going to rot. The people who are being used by Satan against you, All the things of this world, they're going to rot. But God, His promises are true. They're, they're eternal. Don't be going up and trying to take out from the storehouses of heaven what you've treasured. Don't lay your treasure up here on earth. God is the one who justifies And like we saw in, at the, in verse 31, well, if you want to go back to verse 29, and whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do we see? Paul is driving us back to where he's already talked. And he's saying, God is the one who justifies. It's not us. It's not our accuser. Remember Job? I think we forget about Job. Does Job 
was a righteous man. Satan came to God, you know what? I think your servant Job, he's got a, he's got it cushy life. He's going to curse you if, if you take away his comfort, take away those things that he loves. But guess what? Job's love for God was not based on what God gave him. It was based on God. Job wasn't perfect. We know that. But when we get to the end of Job's testing, we see that God was right. Job would serve Him no matter what. He proved that Satan was a liar. Satan was hoping. I mean, even Job's wife said, curse God and die. I mean, that, that's pretty tough when your closest ally says, yeah, you just need to give up. It's not worth it. And in response to the second question, it's the same question, it's not like it's a different one. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Now first, he said, you know, Christ Jesus died. Oh, oh wait, let me fix that. He was raised. He didn't just die, He was raised. Proving, what? That there is no one to condemn us. Why? He, he says it here. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. I don't know who your defense lawyer is, but mine died for me. When the prosecutor says, these are all your sins, guess what? My defense lawyer is going to say, I died for that. That's who Christ is. He is our defender. He is interceding at the right hand of God. We saw how the Spirit last week is interceding in our hearts and this week, we're seeing that Christ is in the presence of God at the right hand. What's the right hand? The hand of power, where the powerful sit. And He is interceding for us. He's sitting at the right hand of the judge saying, They're mine. Satan cannot touch them. He cannot take them without your permission. Jesus is clear. He says, I keep my own. I know my sheep and I keep them. And so, when He is interceding for us, it's just like, remember, He told Peter, He said, you're going to fall, but I've prayed that your faith fail not. I pray that that's what we're being encouraged with today, that Christ is interceding for us if we're believers, if we're in Christ. That's why God can justify us, because Christ paid the penalty we deserved. God is still fully just. Why? Because the penalty has been paid. Satan can bring the accusations. Satan can try to attack us. He can bring the charge against us. He can try to condemn us. But we have Jesus Christ on our side. He died on the cross 
so that we could be set free. That's how you know if it's Satan or the Lord getting on your case. The Satan only condemns you. But conviction is from the Lord. I hope we see the difference because I remember when I was younger and, and just every time I would fall into sin, I, I would let the condemnation of Satan, I mean, everybody that knows what sin is like, before you sin, oh, it's going to be great. Ah, oh, this is worth it. But the moment you give in to sin, we all know this, that sin becomes detestable. And Satan starts to tell you, you see, you can't go to God now. It's over. You're, you're done. He doesn't love you anymore. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't deal with sin, because He does. But that's how we can tell when Satan's the one attacking. He's, his goal is to condemn us here and now. Give up. Quit. Walk away. But Christ doesn't. He comes and draws us to Himself. God the Father draws us to Himself. He convicts us and shows us our sin and says, Repent. Return to Me. That's, I see that so much here in verse 34. He, who is the one who condemns? He's not saying Christ Jesus is the one who who condemns? He's saying Christ Jesus is the answer to why we're not condemned. Right? And that goes all the way back. Not all the way back, but if you look in verse 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I hope we see that. I'm going to tell you something. If Jesus Christ had a law firm on this earth, everybody would be going to Him. Because he's never lost a case. And he only deals with guilty sinners. He doesn't deal with the un the godly. He came for the sick, the unrighteous. He didn't pick me because I grew up in a Christian home. By God's grace I did, but I was a wicked sinner. I needed God's grace. And he picked me because He likes lost causes. He likes to show His power. And one of the ways He shows His power is in redeeming the wicked and fighting for them. God showed His love in not sparing His Son. Christ gave His life and He now sits at the right hand of God interceding for us. So, verse 35, if we have such a great defense lawyer Who will separate us from the love of Christ? This is the obvious question that comes. Who can really separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? Can those things separate us from the love of Christ? Uh, the, The obvious answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, he's asking the question and he's, The obvious answer is no. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not the love we have for Christ, but the love that He has for us. 
Because our love may wane, but His love never fails. And those who will say, well, you know, we need to make sure we clarify this. Paul has already clarified that grace is not a license to live in sin. So, go back, read chapter 5 and chapter 6. Paul has made it clear that when we are born again, we desire to live holy lives. Not for our own glory, but because Christ has transformed us through His Spirit. So nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not even Corona or Wuhan or whatever you want to call this virus that's going around. This cannot separate us from the love of God because God, guess what? You die today, you're going to be in His presence tomorrow. I'm not saying that you should be expecting that to happen, but I'm saying... That's that's why as Christians we shouldn't live in fear of death. We shouldn't be panicking over what the world is panicking over. It doesn't make it less real. Yes, if without Christ, you should be panicking, probably. Because there really is no hope. This is all you have, this life. But with Christ, we have heavenly hope. Just like we talked about last week. We have heavenly hope. And the love of Christ will not be taken from us. The judge is not going to call a bailiff and say, "Uh, can you separate the defendant from Christ's love? Because it's not possible. You know, just like any of you have seen a court movie or been in court, oftentimes, can you separate the defendant from their personal belongings? Guess what? The love of Christ belongs to us. It's been given to us freely. No one, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul has experienced all of these. He knows what he's talking about. He's been through tribulation, distress and persecution, famine and nakedness and peril of sword. Christ has experienced these. Just think about it. All these things he's experienced. And what's what's the point of verse 36? Why why does he put this in here? He says, Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. What's he saying? God is not sparing us from suffering, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. He's he's saying you will experience some of these, maybe all of these as a Christian. But the difference is they can't separate you from the love of Christ. Just think of our, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living in a country where it's illegal to be a Christian, China and Iran, for example. They're experiencing many of these things today for following Christ. And guess what? 
It's not separating them from the love of Christ. And it shouldn't separate us. Because in verse 37, we have a clear declaration. But in all, the but is really important. But in all these things, what things? Verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. Or in other words, super triumph. It's the word that we get the word Nike from. Nike stole it because they liked the, the story that it could be partial myth. We don't know. But the, the story is that when the Greeks beat the, can't remember, the Persians or the Babylonians. I to, to, to fix my history there. But Persians or Romans, or not Romans, the Persians or the Babylonians, um, when they defeated them, a man ran 26.2 miles. I don't know how they knew it was 26.2, but that's where the first marathon happened. And when he got to the place to tell them they had won, he said, Nikeo, and died. But he delivered the, the news of victory. That's what the word means. So super victory. It's, it's, it's a compound word that we see Overwhelmingly conquer. It's a great translation. We will have super victory. There is no way that we're not going to have the victory here. That's what Paul is trying to make it abundantly clear to us that these things can happen, but in, but through Him who loved us, who's Him? Christ, right? Through Him, Christ Jesus we overwhelmingly conquer in the midst of these things. We will have the victory in tribulation, in distress, in persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. And all the things that we encounter in our life, in viruses, we will have the victory. We will live in hope and peace because these things can come but it can't separate us from the love of Christ. Paul is hammering home at our eternal hope and God's power in this life. In verse 38, he says, For I am convinced... The word convinced here is the same word that we had. It's also translated believe. I believe. I am convinced that neither death, which is the promise of all the coronavirus media people, death is imminent. Everyone run to the stores and buy toilet paper because that's going to save your life. Get all the hand sanitizer you can get. I am convinced that neither death nor life, that seems kind of opposite, right? (laughs) Death or life. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. So what's going on now? What's going to happen in the future? 
nor powers, all those powers out in the world, demonic or otherwise, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. None of those things. None of that can separate us from the love of God because Christ has given us His life. The Father did not spare His Son, but delivered Him over. So how much more will He give us all things? Victory. In the end, victory over Satan and his dominion. But it is clear here at the end, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no other option. You can't go to Allah for this. You can't go to Buddha. You can't be doing your yoga for a lack of love there. Yoga is not going to save you. None of the things that this world is looking to will save you, but in Christ... We can't be separated from the love of Christ. Kill me. Guess what? I'm experiencing His love forever. Love does not fail. Now we know that from all the people who want to tell us that the gifts are not for today. Love's the only one that doesn't fail. But they forget love doesn't fail when the terrible times come. And we have hope in Christ. We can trust Him. We don't have to be consumed by fear. So my title, which is a question, can our enemy succeed? If he can, after reading this, if we believe that we don't have the victory over the devil, that something can actually separate us from the love that God demonstrated on the cross in His Son, then we're not born again. So if you're hearing this message and you don't believe this, cry out to God. Because I don't know if you're going to get better hope today than this. I guarantee if you get on Facebook uh, as soon as you walk out of here, all you're going to hear is doom and gloom. You turn on the news channels, doom and gloom. And depending on which one, they're going to be blaming each other. It's the liberals' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. It's China's fault, whoever. It's Americans' fault. God's Word has to be our foundation for hope. What Christ has done for us has to be our foundation. So what are we going to do with this? Are we going to live in fear? Are we going to live in hope and reach the lost? I, I can't tell you, this could be a great opportunity to show the love of Christ because 
Everybody else is locking the door and saying, don't come in. I put up a toilet paper wall and you're not coming through. Everyone else is running, but the church should be reaching out. Maybe we should show up at doors with hand sanitizer and toilet paper. Instead of hoarding those things for ourselves. Maybe we should show up at at doors for the poor who have nothing. The kids are now at home. They don't have any means of food. When they were in school, that's where they were getting their breakfast and lunch. Now the parents are having to stay home to watch them and, and they don't have any means. I don't know how we could reach that. My heart goes out to that and if somebody knows... I would be happy to be a part of, because this is an opportunity for this church, for the church of Christ around the world, in the U.S. specifically, to reach out and and not to hide behind our walls, because the love of Christ cannot be taken from us. I would rather die, die living for Christ than cowering in a corner afraid of what might happen. Maybe you're going to have an opportunity this week. Somebody's going to decide that you're the person they want to talk to in the drive-thru or the gas station, a contractor you're working with, a co-worker, employee. Maybe there's going to be somebody that's talking to you about how bad things are going to be, you have an opportunity to share Christ. It's at crisis points like this that the church has the greatest opportunity to share hope. It's not when everything is going great because in it no one needs God. But when they realize they have no hope, what a greater opportunity. So I pray that we would live in the fact that we have no accuser that can defeat us. And that the love of Christ will not be separated from us. I pray that we will be a light this week and the weeks to come. I mean, everybody's out of school. People are probably going to start walking the streets since everything else is closed. You can't re- the library's closed, the, the pool's closed. I mean, what are kids going to do now? Um, Everything's uh, locked up. I guess this is a gamer's haven right now. Stay in your home. <laughs> Sorry, that's a complete side note. <laughs> Let's pray and we'll dismiss. Father, I pray that you would inc- use what your word says today to encourage us to have hope in Christ, to not lose faith, but, Lord, that it would draw us closer to You and cause us to reach out, to seek to find opportunities to share the Gospel with the hopeless world around us. Lord, we do have hope, and I I know there are many people who wish they could have hope, but they have not seen the light. And I pray, Lord, You would use us through Your Holy Spirit 
to be vessels poured out that your love would be demonstrated in our words, our actions, that we would preach the truth, the hope of Christ, even to sinful men. Lord, you're not in the business of taking care of the righteous. You you have always and only defended the wicked, the sinners, the guilty. Thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for that. We deserve so much, yet you are gracious to us. pray you go with us today. Your blood would cover us. We pray for our nation today. I just pray, Lord, that our nation would turn to Christ at this moment, not to fear and the things of this world, but that they would see this as an opportunity to turn to Christ, to repent of our sins. Lord, that's always what we see in the Old Testament. You calling us to turn to You. And so I pray, Lord, that Your churches specifically would turn to You. That they wouldn't give in to the panic and chaos that's going on. Lord, we thank You that You go with us. You promise that though we will have trouble in this world, that You're with us. So Lord, we ask that today, that You would manifest Your presence daily with us, draw us closer to You, give us a hunger and thirst for Your Word, and cause our hearts to ache for the lost and dying. We thank You, Lord, for this and trust that You will be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.